This week's episode is brought to you by me. That's right, for today's episode, I'm advertising myself. You see, now that I'm done with my PhD exams, I have to go on to the job market, among a few other things. That means I'm looking for a teaching gig to sustain me while I write my dissertation. So I figured now would be a good time to tap into the wonderful network of listeners I have and see if any of you have any connections that could help me out. So, I've got teaching offers through the winter and spring as well as the summer, but my schedule's flexible. I can teach community college, or I can teach uh, high school as well. I actually do have some experience with that, thanks to Washington's Running Start program, though I do not have a master's in teaching, so I cannot teach public school. I currently live in Seattle, but would be willing to relocate for a long-term position. So if you know of any job openings at private high schools or community colleges or four-year colleges, drop me a line, either at ijmeyer at uw.edu or via the History of Japan Podcast Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again, guys, and let's get on with the show. History of Japan podcast, episode 127, The Fall of the Samurai, part 10. This week we finally make it to 1864, arguably the most important date in the Meiji Restoration that most people have never heard of. I've been harping a lot on the theme that the outcome of all of this was not predetermined, and that it all could have played out very differently, and I think 1864 demonstrates this very well. If you were an observer alive at the end of 1864, and somebody came back in a time machine to tell you the future course of Japanese history and how it was all going to play out, I think you could be forgiven for not believing them. We left things at the tail end of 1863, with Japan at a crossroads. On the one hand, the Shishi movement, with its radical slogan of Sonal Joi, Honor the Emperor, Expel the Barbarian, had scored some pretty impressive victories. Shishi groups had seized control of policymaking in Choshu domain and implemented in order to expel all foreigners, firing on foreign ships and driving off both an American and a later a French attempt to destroy their shore fortifications. Shishi also haunted the streets of Kyoto, launching acts of terror against those perceived as being too pro-foreign, despite the best efforts of the Shinsengumi and the Shogunate to bring them under control. On the other hand, the Shishi movement had experienced some pretty bad reversals as well. The British attack on Satsuma's leadership in the city of Kagoshima, which had destroyed about half the city, was a clear reminder that the foreigners still had decisive superiority in weaponry and tactics, and that in a stand-up fight, foreign troops and ships would easily beat Japanese ones. In addition, Shinsengumi patrols in Kyoto, while they had not stopped the Shishi attacks in the city, were taking a toll. Still, going into 1864, you could be forgiven for thinking that momentum was on the side of the Shishi movement, particularly when the Tokugawa Bakufu was dealt yet another serious reversal in May of that year. In May 1864, around 2,000 Shishi rose up in Mito Domain to the north of Edo, seizing control of the domain's armory, several artillery pieces, and declaring their intention to march on Kyoto and liberate 
the emperor from those who would oppress him. Mito Domain, remember, belonged to a family of Shimpan Tokugawa relatives. Its old daimyo, Tokugawa Nariaki, had been a fierce opponent of central shogunate policy and had spent the last years of his life under house arrest as a result. Mito had a long shishi tradition. The men who killed the Tairo Inosuke had primarily been from Mito, and many samurai within Mito were radicalized as a result of their lord's long period under house arrest, which many of them perceived as unjust. Shishi's strength in the territory had continued to grow, despite the fact that now the Bakufu was led by one of the sons of Tokugawa Nariaki, Tokugawa Yoshinobu. Yoshinobu was convinced that he had to take a hard line with rebels from his home province, so that he would be above accusations of favoritism or particularism. He dispatched a combined Mito-Tokugawa force to suppress the rebellion. This army, which numbered around 3,000 to the enemy 2,000, attacked the main base of the Mito rebels atop Mount Skuba in Mito in June. However, the overenthusiastic Tokugawa commander ran straight into an ambush, as overenthusiastic commanders tend to do. In addition, he ran into this ambush while marching his troops uphill. As you might imagine, his troops immediately started streaming back down the hill, and the Tokugawa armies routed. Yoshinobu dispatched a second pacification force, this time of 6,000, but it too was defeated by the Mito rebels in October, and the rebels seized yet more arms and equipment as a result. So all in all, things were not looking great for the Tokugawa going into 1864, but a couple of big changes helped turn things around. First, the situation in Choshu rapidly reversed itself. Remember, in June of 1863, Choshu Domain, under the influence of radical Shishi groups, had implemented an expulsion order for foreigners and begun firing on foreign ships passing by their territory. An American attempt to destroy the Choshu artillery pieces that were firing on ships failed. So did a French attempt shortly thereafter. As a result of those failures, the British began the process of assembling an allied force to put an end to the Choshu bombardments once and for all. By summer 1864, that alliance had finished preparing and an allied fleet of ships from four nations, the UK, France, the United States, and the Netherlands, sailed for Choshu. In the meantime, the British did try to negotiate with Choshu to avoid further fighting, but as negotiations went on, it became clear that the Shishi of Choshu were not interested in compromising what they saw as a sacred duty to uphold the will of the emperor and expel the foreigner. The foreign allied force left Yokohama in August, 14 months after the Choshu batteries had fired on their first foreign ship. They arrived on the Choshu coast in early September. In the intervening time, Choshu naval defenses had been greatly supplemented. Six small warships and 40 smaller picket ships guarded over 100 artillery pieces facing out to sea. However, most of the Choshu weaponry was comprised of antiquated designs sold to them by foreigners after advances in European arms technology had made the old designs obsolete, at least on the European field of battle. In other words, Choshu may have had a lot of guns, but most of them were not cutting-edge technology. 
The 28 warships in the Allied force, by contrast, were equipped with the latest in weapons technology. 15 were cutting-edge British warships brought in from Hong Kong. Also aboard were 2,000 marines from the various participating countries, including contingents of two of the best fighting forces on Earth, Great Britain's Royal Marines and the French Empire's Marine Infantry. The results were predictable. In two days of fierce fighting, the Choshu shore batteries were crushed, and Choshu's infant navy sent to the bottom of the sea. Western marines landed in Choshu after having the way cleared by their battleships, and proceeded to storm the remaining shore batteries, spiking the guns they found there, basically punching holes in the guns so that those guns no longer had the tight seal necessary to fire correctly. Total foreign casualties numbered just under 70, with two warships lightly damaged. Choshu casualties were also limited, as most of the Choshu ground force retreated in the face of superior western firepower, rather than standing and dying. Choshu's shore defenses, however, were totally eliminated. Humiliated, Choshu Domain was forced to ask for a ceasefire, and eventually agreed to a $3 million payout to the Western powers to compensate them for their trouble. At the same time, the situation in Kyoto was dramatically reversed, as the Shinsengumi made one of the largest busts in their history. If you'll remember, the Shinsengumi were a force of Ronin, raised by the protector of Kyoto, Matsudaira Katamori. Matsudaira needed to bring the Shishi groups in Kyoto under control, and the Shinsengumi, comprised entirely of former ronin, provided a method for him to rapidly supplement his forces. The Shinsengumi were tasked with suppressing Shishi movements in Kyoto and bringing stability to the city. On June 5, 1864, the Shinsengumi got a huge break, one of their units was able to capture a Shishi from Choshu for interrogation. This captured Shishi was interrogated, and supposedly the methods used were quite brutal, for example, driving iron spikes into his heels as he was suspended from his ankles. However, descriptions of the exact methods used don't appear until well after the fall of the Tokugawa, and may have been exaggerated, though certainly there was nothing stopping the Shinsengumi from torturing captured prisoners. This captured Shishi began confessing, and what he confessed to was absolutely incredible. A plot by Shishi, primarily from Choshu, to set fire to the city of Kyoto, and then take advantage of the general chaos that would follow to kidnap the emperor and bring him back to Choshu. Now, however realistic, or indeed even real, this plan was, is a matter of some contention. It's very unclear as to whether or not the Shishi in question made the whole thing up under duress. It's something of a truism in interrogation that people will say whatever they think you want to hear under torture. They will just make things up if they think you want to hear them, and that's very possibly what happened here. On the other hand, this plan could have been actually practical, or maybe just some half-cocked crackpot idea. It's very hard to be sure because the only place the plan is recorded is in the Bakufu records describing the interrogation, and those are not exactly unbiased. Still, however realistic or unrealistic this whole plan was, when the commander of the Shinsengumi, Kondo Isami, reported the results of the interrogation to Matsudaira Katamori, 
Katamori insisted that there could be only one response. Even if this was just some crazy half-baked idea, they could not afford to take a chance. A debilitating strike would have to be launched against the Shishi to prevent the Shishi plan from getting any traction. The captured Shishi had named the Ikeda Inn in Kyoto as the chief meeting place for the plotters, so on the evening of that same day, the Shinsengumi launched a massive raid on the inn. Now, inside the inn were indeed several Shishi, and the result of the attack was a pretty intense sword fight between the two sides. The fighting lasted for about two hours and raged both inside and outside the building. Supposedly, if you go to Kyoto, you can still see damage from the fighting on the nearby Sanjo Bridge. In the end, numbers and time were on the side of the Shinsengumi, and that's what decided the issue. After reinforcements arrived on the scene, the inn was finally stormed. Seven Shishi were killed, 23 taken into custody. Three Shinsengumi members died as a result of wounds from the fighting. This was pretty indisputably a huge win for the Shinsengumi. The successful bust at the Ikeda Inn was a major feather in the cap of both the unit and its organizer Matsudaira Katamori. However, success at the Ikeda Inn would also lead to the most direct challenge yet to Matsudaira's control over Kyoto. In the aftermath, Choshu Shishi began arranging an even more ambitious plan. If a plan to covertly seize the Emperor and bring him back to Choshu would not work, then perhaps a plan to overtly seize the Emperor would. Thus, instead of a plan to use the chaos caused by a fire to seize the Emperor covertly, Choshu Shishi began working on a plan to launch a coup and seize control of the Imperial Palace militarily. The Shishi had support from a strongly pro-Shishi government back in the Choshu capital of Hagi, and as a result, several senior Choshu retainers began making their way to Kyoto with large military escorts over the course of the summer, all on the pretext of some kind of official business. This was actually a pretty clever way to infiltrate large numbers of troops into Kyoto, Somebody as high status as a senior official for Choshu, one of the largest domains in Japan, would be entitled to a large retinue of armed retainers commensurate with his status. Indeed, it would be far more strange if such a person did not travel with an impressively armed band. Three such senior retainers made their way to Kyoto over the course of July. The plotters planned to strike as quickly as possible, figuring, not without reason, that the Shinsengumi and Matsudaira Katamori would still be resting on their laurels from the raid on the Ikeda Inn, and would not suspect that another plot could be put into place so quickly. On August 20th, 1864, the plotters decided to strike. Choshu units marched on one of the gates of the Imperial Palace, the Hamaguri Gate, hoping to basically seize control of the palace Naku, before taking the Emperor and retreating with him from the city. Initially, the plan seemed to go off fairly well. Aizu Domain troops loyal to Matsudaira Katamori were charged with the defense of Hamaguri Gate and had been caught unprepared for the attack. They were thrown back relatively quickly, and it seemed like only a matter of time before Choshu troops would manage to break the gates down and enter the palace. 
However, reinforcements for the defenders were not far away, and they came from an unexpected quarter. Satsuma Domain, which had so recently been attacked by the British, was also charged with defense of the Imperial Palace, and the Satsuma commander on the scene decided to go aid the Aizu defenders. Together, the joint Satsuma-Aizu force was able to drive off the Choshu attackers. Of those three senior Choshu officials who traveled to Kyoto to participate in the attempted coup, one died in the fighting, the other two committed suicide to avoid capture. So why would a Satsuma commander come to aid Aizu? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, remember at this point that Satsuma's leadership is fairly conservative. There's not a lot of love lost between the Satsuma and the Tokugawa, particularly after the Tokugawa just up and let the British burn down Kagoshima, but still, dislike of the Bakufu is one thing. Deciding to back Choshu in what is basically an open rebellion is something altogether different, and that was just a bridge, or in this case a gate, too far. Second, neither Satsuma nor Choshu had much in the way of love for the Bakufu, but they also had a pretty intense rivalry themselves. The two domains had been rivals going back to the Sengoku era 250 years earlier, where they had been competitors for power in more or less the same areas of Japan. That rivalry was only intensified by the Battle of Sekigahara, which decided Tokugawa dominance over Japan. Both Satsuma and Choshu had fought against the Tokugawa, but the daimyo of Satsuma, seeing which way the wind was blowing during the battle, withdrew his troops before they could get seriously involved in the fighting, leaving the Mori family of Choshu, among many others, high and dry. Neither side had ever really gotten past this betrayal, or strategic retreat if you prefer the Satsuma version, and so their mutual distrust remained strong. Letting Choshu get away with the Emperor would weaken the Tokugawa, yes, but it would also greatly strengthen Choshu, and functionally make Choshu the leaders of any anti-Tokugawa movement. That was not a position a Satsuma Samurai would cede without a fight. So Satsuma Samurai moved in to help troops from Aizu hold the gates of the Imperial Palace, and the result was disaster for the Choshu attackers. Most of the Choshu force had to retreat from the city, Ironically enough, on the way out, they did resort to the old plan of starting massive fires to create chaos in Kyoto, this time not to abduct the emperor, but to cover their retreat. As I mentioned earlier, the three major Choshu leaders sent to Kyoto all died in or shortly after the fighting. As the smoke began to clear in Kyoto the next day, Bakufu leadership came together to debate the response. Clearly something would have to be done about Choshu. In this, the Tokugawa actually received backing from an unexpected source, the imperial court. Though Choshu Domain's policies, and indeed the Shishi movement in general, was supposedly all about liberating the emperor, Emperor Komei himself did not much appreciate the idea of his palace being attacked or his city being burned by his liberators. He turned out to be one of the chief proponents of a punitive expedition against Choshu. I think this moment reveals a lot about the character of Emperor Komei. Yes, he was an expulsionist, yes, he had anti-foreign sentiments that seemed to align him with the Shishi movement. However, on balance, he did prefer the stability of the Tokugawa to the violence of the Shishi, 
exactly because he felt that the Tokugawa would have a better shot at actually succeeding in expelling the foreigners than a bunch of roving bands and crazy kids would. The Shishi may have looked to Emperor Komei as their beacon of leadership, but in the end, he did not reciprocate. Emperor Komei did not look to the Shishi as a movement with a real future. So, with the Emperor's blessing, two different forces would be assembled. A smaller one under the command of Tokugawa Yoshinobu would muster at Edo and then head north. Yoshinobu was to return to his home at Mito and put down the rebellion there once and for all. The second and by far larger force was to muster first at Osaka and then link up with reinforcements at Hiroshima. It would march on Choshu and punish that domain for its rebellion. This larger force would be commanded by another Tokugawa relative of no particular importance to us, the daimyo of Owari, Tokugawa Yoshikatsu, if you're curious. To supplement this attack on Choshu, the Tokugawa Bakufu also played a card it had not used for almost two and a half centuries. It ordered the other domains surrounding Choshu to fulfill their feudal obligations and join in the attack on Choshu. The result was an absolutely overwhelming force bearing down on the Choshu capital at Hagi. Attacks came from all directions, and Choshu simply lacked the requisite forces to defend against attacks from every point on the compass. By October, the remaining leadership in Hagi sent out peace feelers to the Tokugawa, asking what Choshu would have to do in order to avoid total destruction at the hands of the Bakufu. This peace feeler actually did a lot to divide the Tokugawa leadership. More hardline leaders wanted absolutely brutal peace conditions that would include bringing in both the daimyo of Choshu, Mori Takachika, and his eldest son to Edo as hostages, as well as a truly massive reduction in the territory of the Choshu domain, well over half its worth in Koku. However, the Tokugawa commander on the scene, Tokugawa Yoshikatsu, was not particularly enthusiastic about that idea. He seems to have opposed harsh punishment for Choshu, like most Bakufu moderates, out of a belief that maintaining unity within Japan in the face of the foreign threat was more important than punishing Choshu. Instead, Yoshikatsu made a relatively generous peace offer to Choshu. All Shishi leaders involved in the Choshu government, including anybody who had signed off on the attack on the Imperial Palace, were to commit suicide, though they would not be executed like common criminals. The Mori were then to disarm all remaining Shishi in their territory, and their holdings would be reduced by about 100,000 koku, about one-third of their value. With no real choices left on the board, the Choshu leadership agreed in early November to implement the terms. The remaining Shishi leadership in the Choshu government was ordered to commit suicide, and Choshu committed to upholding the rest of the terms of the ceasefire, though, importantly, those terms were not immediately implemented. The next month, the final bit of good news came for the Tokugawa. The Mito Rebellion had been defeated, as Tokugawa Yoshinobu had managed to crush his father's rebellious samurai and restore order to the province. Some rebels had fled the domain rather than surrender, and were making a desperate run towards Kyoto for a last stand, but they would not last for more than a month before being cornered and forced to surrender. Tokugawa victory appeared to be complete, 
the Tokugawa had skillfully dodged challenges from their enemies by dealing with them in sequence, first deflecting foreign attention onto Satsuma, then dealing with Choshu, then dealing with Mito. At least, that's how it seemed, but the conflict was not over by any means. It would be easy, like we said at the start of the episode, for somebody living in December 1864 to predict that the Tokugawa had weathered the storm and would come out strong the other end, but that neglects the real core of the matter. The Tokugawa's enemies were not defeated permanently, they had simply retreated temporarily. So, for example, in Choshu, when the domain government attempted to enforce the terms of the ceasefire and disarm the Shishi within its territory, well, the Shishi decided not to take any of that. Nobody could have their rifles, though anybody who came to take them could have all the bullets they could hold. In the short term, the events of 1864 probably did do a lot to help put the Tokugawa in a position of strength that would stabilize their regime. However, as a result of the year, two big changes took place that would really upset the playing field. First, after the defeat of Choshu, hardliners in the Tokugawa government got a lot cockier, and hugely overplayed their hand as a result. Second, the foreign attacks on Satsuma in 1863 and Choshu in 1864 dramatically changed the thinking of mini Shishi. Previously, it had been fairly easy for young, hot-headed men to think that they stood a chance against foreign arms and equipment. Sure, those foreigners had some great rifles, but we've got rifles too, plus numbers and the dedication. It was easy to dismiss reports coming of foreign prowess from China, for example, as a failure on the part of the Chinese rather than a sign of foreign power. However, the up-close and personal demonstration of Western firepower did a lot to change minds among Shishi groups. It's one thing to talk tough about expelling the foreigner with your drinking buddies, or to shoot at an unarmed merchant ship, or to stab an admittedly obnoxious British merchant. But it's something altogether different to face a contingent of battle-hardened marines supported by offshore bombardment from a deadly accurate battleship. So, in the wake of the foreign intervention, the attitudes of Minishishi changed. They were still committed to imperial restoration and to the destruction of the Tokugawa. But the foreigners? Well, they have their uses. After all, the foreigners were happy to use their guns on the Japanese, but they were just as happy to sell those guns to the Japanese. And that, my friends, that's going to be a game-changer. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Robert Ling for donating to support the show. This week I also have a special announcement to make. I'll be making a guest appearance on another show, Speculation Theater, where I'll be talking with the two wonderful hosts, Kirk Sharma and Jorge Bayona, about the historical what-if scenarios surrounding Japan accepting a negotiated settlement with the U.S. in July 1941. It was a lot of fun to record. I'm really looking forward to hearing the final product. So if you're at all interested, I highly recommend you go check it out. The show's available at speculationtheater.com. Of course, if you'd rather stick to what you know, well, you can always find out more about this week's episode or any other episode or submit ideas for future episodes at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast where you can also find links to both our Patreon and PayPal pages. So, 
Thanks for listening. Thank you for your support. And I'll see you next week for The Fall of the Samurai, Part 11.